The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. So I'd like to welcome Sean Keane. Sean Keane from County Galway is described as the greatest musical find of the 90s. Traditional Irish folk and even country and blues songs all lend themselves to his uniquely styled and forgettable voice. Growing up in a family of singers and musicians, he is known for his distinctive Shano style voice. Sean learned the Shano style of singing from his mother and his aunts. Sean is a singer and multi-instrumentalist of skill, acclaim and flair. He is rooted firmly in all Ireland with the Keane family tradition of Shano singing. Sean's voice has untold depth, range and maturity. His skill on the flute, whistles and pipes with which he punctuates songs make his work unforgettable. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank God, that's some introduction, Simon. Thank you very much indeed for having me on. Well, you're welcome. I mean, you deserve it. You've done you've done a lot and you're still doing a lot, so you deserve a good introduction, you know. How are you today? I'm very well indeed, sir. I'm very well. Enjoying a typical spring Irish day. It's blowing and the rain is kind of parallel to the ground, you know, coming in from the west, as they say. But look, at all is good, Simon. All is good. That's good. The last time we saw you, Sean, was at Christmas. You came on our Christmas podcast and fair play to you, sang a song or two and we had a bit of a chat and we want to thank you again for doing that. So it's good to see you again. Ah, it's a great pleasure to be back. It's nice to be doing. I'm doing quite a lot of things online and using the technology. Something that I wasn't very familiar with. I kind of stayed away from it a little bit, Simon. But due to the pandemic, I think me and a lot of other people were brought into the technological world as kicking and screaming. But my, it has kept us together and it has kept us connected. And it's a wonderful resource. It's, it absolutely is to think that we can sit down and do this. There's, it's great. It can keep us going at doing what we like to do. Yes, yes, for sure. I think, you know, without the Internet and without all these capabilities we have now with computers, the the music industry would have been like severely affected because right now it's been severely affected with the cancellation of tours and everything. So thank God we have virtual gigs because it's a way of keeping connected with the fans and the new fans. And I mean, for artists like yourself, if you couldn't connect with them, you'd be in hiatus for a long time, no? Well, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, I started doing something called the Cara Cottage Sessions uh, every Sunday evening at 7.30 uh, from my ancestral home, which is a, an ancient old attached uh, cottage. It dates back in my family, back to the 1820s. And it's, uh, it's where my aunts and my uncles lived and my father was born. And it's there. It was an open house, a session house and storytelling and so on. It was back in the time when people entertained themselves singing and playing. Well, it's there that I learned a lot of the music that I sing and play today. So it's it, that's a great outlet for me each and every Sunday evening. It gives me something to look forward to for the week, preparing it and so on. So without it, uh, it, it would be a very different situation if we didn't have yes, it. Yes, yes. Let's, um, you know, let's go back a bit because, you know, we're like, as I said, you're in, in Carlos Strand, kind of Belclare side over towards Castle Hackett that way. And you're not far from where I am myself. I'm a Currafin man and uh, we're very close neighbours, you know. So the thing about it is um, 
that's a lovely area over there around Knockman. Many a time I've walked around it and, you know, you've Castle Hackett House there and everything. It's a beautiful area. So tell us about, like, obviously you were you were born in Carlos Strand. So what's your kind of earliest memories of being born there and around that area? Well, I actually, you mentioned uh, Castle Hackett Hill of Knockman, as it's known. Uh, I There's a little house at the bottom of Knockman Hill. It's there I spent the first two and a half years of my life. And uh, actually, my first recollection, or my first, I suppose, awareness of being in this world is the day that we were moving home from, we were moving the house from the house near Castlacket Hill to down here in Strand. I was put in in the top of a, a, a care load of furniture as a, as a child, as the, the, move, the move was going on. So that's my first, uh, that's my first memory of, of, of Castlacket and indeed of being on the planet, as I say. But it's a, it's a wonderful place. The, the hill itself is an ancient old hill. It's, uh, it's said to be the, the, where the, the method, uh, uh, methodical, uh, yeah, mythical, mythological, that's the word I'm looking for. It's a bit early in the day for me, Simon. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, old battle, the ancient battle of the, 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 that was fought in Maitura, which is an area near Kong and, um, in, um, Kong and, uh, around that area. The two Hidadan and, and, and the Fair Bullock were meant to be fighting there for days, and they came to a truce in Castlelacket Hill. And the Fair Bullock said that they would rule over the ground, and that the Hidadan and two Hidadan would rule under the underworld. So they became the fairies, and uh, those those uh, they're, they're the legends that Ireland is made up of. I think the thing is, I've never really looked into it, but I've always wondered, like in as you said, in mythological tales and everything. The the opposite hill, Nakro, which is over in Abbey Nakmai, um, is there any kind of a link between Nakro and Nakma when it comes to those legends and stories? Because you can see both, you can see each hill from the other. So, uh, did you ever hear of any stories about Nakro and Nakma? I never heard any any relation, any of the stories going on, the legends going on about the two hills. But as you say, you can see both when you're on top of either. You know, so. Uh, I, I do know that the Ordnance Survey have, uh, have uh, they put monitors up there for, for taking levels and all of the rest of the work that they do. But there's also a lot of uh, burial grounds up there that date back to, they say, it's older than Stonehenge or Newgrange. So there's a lot of, they found something like, I think, more than 10 burials uh, up there. And, uh, of course, we claim that Queen Maeve is, is buried up there as well. I'm not sure if the people in Sligo would agree with me or not, but sure, there we go. We have to keep our legends alive. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's funny, when you think back to people burying their dead and, you know, their loved ones, sometimes, like, a, a place with higher ground will hold more kind of austerity or more you know, reverence, and it's closer to heaven, as they say. So I imagine for a lot of people, they would be thinking, oh, I'd like to bury them up there because it's a fantastic place and maybe magical. Yes, and I think as well what would have happened here because it's the only hill in, around this area until we go out to the west coast and out to the Connemara Mountains and out to the, the, the hills of Clare. But this is the only hill that stands there in the plain. So it, it's the first place that people would be heading for if they wanted to see where they were and to find their location. They'd head for the high ground. And once they get up to the high ground, well, it would probably be a place to stay. Uh, so I'd say that came about in, in a kind of an organic way as well. 
but it's uh, it's there's a lot of myth and legends and stories attached to the old hill and it's nice to, to to hear them i was told a lot of them as a child luckily enough my mother taught me a lot of them some of which i have forgotten indeed a lot of them i have forgotten but it's uh, there's something about it when you're walking up around there there's a, there's a beautiful um there's a beautiful feeling about it, I have to say. Yeah, and, and then, of course, you have, you know, Castle Hackett House, which is just across the field, across the road. So that area, you know, between Knockman and Castle Hackett House, you know, there's a lot of history there and a lot of, like, you know, stories, I imagine, even with Castle Hackett House, which is now, I think, is well-developed and it's kind of a retreat centre or yoga and that kind of stuff there. So it's great to see them doing something with it. Yeah, well, the people who own it, uh, they're, they're, they're great people. They're restored it and are restoring it. It's a big project, but they're restoring it uh, bit by bit back to the way it was kind of former glory, I suppose. And uh, they're now doing accommodation, and it's beautiful accommodation when you're up there in, in that house. I've, I've, I've been in it many, many times. Indeed, I was brought into that as a child when we, we used to go visit there to the the, the last... The, 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 the butler that lived there, he, he was a caretaker in it for many years. And he's the last person, the last inhabitant of the house that I remember. But uh, General Bernard, um, who owned, he was the last in, to inherit the, the estate and the house. He, When he died, his wish was to be buried on the hill. And his grave is up there as well. So that's the most recent burial that would be there. And that was in the late 50s or early 60s. Oh, Wow. I, I didn't know that. So he's buried up there on the top of the hill or it's like a secret location or you can actually visit the grave? You can actually visit the grave. Um, the local community got together and they did a walkway all around the hill of Knockmare, which is about, I think it's about three or four kilometers long to walk around. And you can walk by his grave as you go up there. There's actually a little detour that brings you in around to show you the grave. So it's it's a nice it's a nice place. All right. I didn't know that. That's that's great. So so Sean, when you know, when you were growing up, obviously, you know, with your your aunts and your you had a, a big family and extended family and everything. And what was that like, you know, growing up? Because you're you had a, a big influence and lots of Irish traditions and lots of kind of fireside singing and everything. How do you remember that whole experience? Well, I must I'm sure it must have been a joyous time. It was it was amazing, and I suppose now, looking back on it in hindsight, it was a it, it was a unique upbringing. It was a unique family to be born into, because there was a, a real emphasis on the music and the culture. And my mother would um, she would she was always collecting, and my grandmother was always collecting songs and music. <clears throat> and it the house became a, a hub. It was like a, a Google of the day. Because people would come in and they would, she would write down a song that they would give her. And somebody else might come in looking for a song. And she'd give them a song if they gave her a song back. So she was a real, as I say, a little a Google of her own. She, she was the local letter writer as well. Uh, but she, she collected a lot of the songs that my aunts and my parents and I sing today. And they, she and a few, a handful of her generation really when the music and the singing was almost dead when there was not it wasn't as they say profitable or popular to be singing traditional music or singing traditional songs uh, they kept it alive they kept it alive in the old houses like i i do the Sunday night session then and i suppose that's a magical experience to be part of that 
the amount of people, famous people back in the day that I would have seen come through uh, Cara was, uh, it was amazing, really, and a great experience for me. And I suppose that when you're talking about when I was a child, we didn't have Google and we didn't have mobile phones and we didn't have internet or anything else. So the only way that the music and the songs could be passed on was to write them down. And I think that's the reason we have a lot of different versions of songs and tunes, because somebody would hear a tune or a song some night and they'd try to play it when they get home or the following day. So they may remember bits of it, but they may not remember it all. So alas, another version is born. Yes, yes. Like that's kind of so with, you know, Carrick Fergus and then the water is wide. And and I'm sure there are much, you know, or many different versions of songs, for example, in the United States, where people have traveled and they remember bits of songs or they give them different names. So it's very interesting when you hear a song from one culture or one country and then you hear the same air or melody uh, in a different country and that has the, you know, it's the same melody but different words. Yeah, and I had that happen just two weeks ago. There's a song that I do, it's an Australian, it's an immigration song, an Irish immigration song about Australia. And it's a song that I do that I got from a, a man called Stephen Coyne in Connemara many years ago. And I called it with my bun. Well, it was called with my bundling on my shoulder and my shillelagh in my hand. But I did that a couple of weeks ago at the Cara Cottage session. And somebody from Australia sent me in a video with the same song. And I, I, I was aware of it. It's a song called With My Swag Upon My Shoulder. Uh, so, this is, as you say, it's the same song, similar kind of melody, uh, just, just slightly different words. So I love to find that. I think it's great because you can just see somebody, I think it went like this. I think it might have gone like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, it's funny how you mentioned the Shalala because I was born in, in uh, Carlo. My father is a Carlo man. And I was born at that time we were living in Shalala, which is kind of on the border. I think Shalala is in Wicklow. And... It's funny because I was I recently did an interview with John Spillane and we were talking about the shillelagh. And it's funny how you were saying that it came up in the song, the shillelagh on my shoulder. Yeah, 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 yeah. A, a beast of a thing, a weapon it was too. Like you wouldn't want to get a slap of it on the head. No, no, no. <laughs> so so tell us, um, um, Sean, when you were growing up in, you know, and around Carla Strand and, did you? What did you do as a young man? You know, I mean, I know you were singing a lot, and but when did you go outdoors a lot and run through the fields? And were you very active? I mean, did, was there lots to explore around the area for you? I was always gone. I was always. I was always. If there wasn't adventure, I was creating it, and uh, that was back in the time when uh, you wouldn't have a lot of toys. You certainly wouldn't have as many toys uh, as uh, begetting toys as uh, the kids are nowadays. Um, so a lot of the time I would be creating my own games, making me own, my own toys, making my own bows and arrows and traps and all of this kind of stuff. I spent my time, uh, childhood years, up on trees. There was wonderful trees back there, just outside my window here, near my grandmother's house. And uh, oh, I had different locations, different hiding places and, and all of that. But that time, Simon, it was different times. You You could go out the door of the morning. You'd be put out the door in the morning and told not to come back till evening. And you would go out the door in the morning, but you were everybody's child. 
you would if you did something wrong you get corrected by somebody it, it they could be complete strangers but you would be put in your box just because like that was it don't do that you know but uh, now that doesn't go on you don't interfere or anything but that time the whole it's like the same that the the village rears the child in my case that was it because i was in and out everybody else's houses all the neighbors I suppose wrecking their heads, really, because I was a, a giddy young fella. I was running around the place, always creating development, always <laughs> finding new adventure. So that le- led to, uh, I suppose, falls and breaks. And thank God I never broke anything, but plenty of falls and stuff like that. It was just growing up. It was growing up and it was a lovely, peaceful time where you could actually let kids out around and they could play for the day and you'd know that they'd be safe. Yes. And, you know, you you had a, a lot of kids in the family and, and I saw there as well that when you when you're, you had a sister, Mary, and she died of tuberculosis when she was eight. How, how old were you when she died? I wasn't born at that time, uh, Simon. I wouldn't have been, I wasn't born at that time. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know Mary. Um she would have been born a good few years before I was born. But, um, yeah, there was a big family. West Marion, she, she passed away as a child. But there, there, it left me with, there were seven of us, uh, three brothers and three sisters. And, uh, yeah, I suppose that was kind of an average family or maybe even small for its, its time, you know. But, uh, yeah, there are seven hours in it. Right, right. Okay. And, you know, where, like, uh, in the lineup of things, were you the youngest then, or was there someone younger than you? I, I think you were the youngest. But, you know, do you, was there big age gaps between the kids, or, you know, do you remember having, like, the, the big brothers and sisters, and were they a big influence on you growing well, up? Well, I'm the youngest of the family, and what they say about the youngest is they're the ones that get spoiled. I don't remember that, Simon. I, I missed out on that bit. But I am the youngest. And the brothers and sisters were absolutely great. Uh, they were, they, and still are. They still are. They were supporting me when I was a child. And they still support me. It's, uh, it's, uh, they're, they're, they're good people. They're good people. And patient, I have to say, when they were putting up with a young fella like me. And, and, and Sean, where did you go to school then? What was your local school, like your first school, your first national school? What was that? My first national school was a place called Cylon. It would be towards Tume as we speak, uh, about two miles. We always walked to school and walked home from school, even in days like today, which is uh, wet and windy. But uh, again, you would walk to school with other kids. So there was, there was, uh, there was uh, adventure. There was adventure and you had, again, you were away from the adults. So you could, you had the space to grow and to experience different things and learn little lessons on your own without having an adult around you all the time. I think that's one of the things today. Children are doing things, but it actually seems to be the adults that's doing it because there's no space for the child's, for, for children. Not, I feel like that I had, where I had the freedom of going away, out of sight, out of mind for hours which left me the space to be to create my own kind of life. Now, what I did do I, always as a child, I was always working with my hands. My brothers, my elder brothers had, had a workshop at home where they did welding and they would make anything for farmers or anything locally. Well, I fell into that as a very young child. I, I was welding machinery and repairing tractors and all of that kind of crack when I was maybe 11 and 12 years of age. 
Because when I'd get the lads gone out of the workshop, I would go in and I would start teaching myself how to weld and drill holes and cut things out and designing little boats and putting electronic switches on the bikes and putting indicators on them and just messing with technology and, and, and what well, there was no technology, but making things. I was constantly making things or creating things or inventing things. And I still have a little workshop here today. And I have, as I said earlier on, I made something like that. I just made a whistle in there a few weeks ago. So I like to do things like that. It, it's, uh, I've always had an interest in, 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 in working with my hands. I get great satisfaction from making something or doing something and looking back. And the satisfaction you get from your work if it's nice. And yeah, I like to take pride in the bits and pieces I do. So it's a way of getting lost. In, 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 in other words, if, you're, if I'm focusing on that, consciously focusing on, on making this. My subconscious is off. I'm whistling a tune or I'm singing a bit of a song and then I'll become aware of what I'm singing or, or playing. And it may be a song that I would sing in, a, in an album a couple of years later. It was just kind of they were streaming through as I'd be doing something else and I'd be whistling away and I'd think, what's that? And I'd go come back in and I'd play it or write it down or something. So I think they work hand in hand. I think when you're thinking of music constantly, it's, it can be crowding as well. You know, it can kind of do that. But if you're thinking of something else, then the subconscious can go out and kind of pick up the tunes and the songs that you like to sing. So it's a kind of a process like that that I like. And as I say, I've always been working with my hands and I love to do it. And I love to see good tradesmen and people do a good job and they stand back from it. And you know the look on their face if they take pride in their work or not. There's guys who would come into a job and oh, they wouldn't even see it going out the door. I would. I'd look back and I'd say, I like that. Or no, I'd do it better next time or I'll do it different next time. There's something about that as well when you go into a workshop and you know, you also get your own bit of space, you know, especially in around the family and kids and everything and the stresses of modern life. It's nice to go in and work with your hands and create something. And like you said, have that pride pride when it's finished, like to go, wow, that didn't turn out too bad. Or as you said, maybe I need to fix it. Maybe it's not so good. And But you can get great satisfaction. And I think it's really good for the soul. It's And like you said, you know, whether it's that, time away to kind of heal yourself or heal your ailments heal your troubles it does a lot for you and but it can also bring a new kind of uh, stream of melodies and songs if you're creative with that kind of thing as well so the workshop has always been a great thing and i i, I think more people should have them in their house a little place for crafts a little place for a bit of carpentry a bit of woodwork whatever it, they're a great idea no uh, for me, it's essential. I, I, I find that it, they, they, in my life, <clears throat> they, 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 they're, they're, they're both part of me, and I like to express both, and I love to do things. I like when somebody says, would you make me something? Now, I haven't been making things for other people for, for, for a while, but when somebody asks me to make something, it me, now it throws me off in a different space because now I have to figure it out. What do you make it from? How big is it going to be? How small? What color? What shape? Are there any things that need, you need to be careful of? And you just go through a different process. And I think when you're honing in on that, as you said, then you can have this space in the subconscious to work away in the music uh, without even being aware of it. So there is, there is something I think it's important for me anyway. 
And I think a lot more people could do it, but people kind of get shy away from those things saying, oh, no, I can't do that with my hands. I can't do that with my hands. But actually, if, you, if people thought, well, maybe I actually can do something, then I think you could achieve a lot more. I, like, I never knew I could make a whistle that would play a note. But I went and I, I had that made in about an hour. And yeah, because we were talking about the whistle before we started the interview, and uh, Sean was telling me because I was looking at it and I said, "Is that made from hickory or something or ash?" It looks a very light wood, and he said, "No, it's PVC." So I'm going to ask you, like, obviously, you know, when you made this and you were trying it out, and then I'm going to ask you to play a little tune on it, maybe. Oh, why not? Why not? Yeah, it's just a piece of plumbing pipe. It's a piece of plumbing pipe. It's under anybody's sink in the country or in the world. Uh, and I just I just thought I'm going to make one of those. And um, so I did. I, it's just a piece of pipe, plastic pipe, and the holes are... That's the most important thing. Well, it's all important. You have the, 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 the diameter of the, of the bore and then the holes in relation to the diameter of the bore. But it actually doesn't sound too bad. That's really good, and it sounds amazing. It doesn't sound too bad. Now, I, 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 I've been ever since I made it. I haven't actually glued it up because I want to stay, uh, as they'd say, tampering with it. So I'm moving the headpiece around, and I'm moving the fipple around, and I'm re. So I've just reshaped quite a few times since I made it, just to see what happens when you do different things. Like if I'm to file that there a little bit and change the angle there then that changes the whole sound and the tone and the tuning of the flute. So you kind of do something and it makes it worse and then you have to correct it to improve it again. And then you go the opposite direction and it causes another problem. So it's a beautiful thing to be at. I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's good for the, uh, for the mind to be doing something like that. I see that you have some guitars and uh, hanging up there behind you, Simon. So you might go down and make one of those in the workshop. <laughs> yeah, you know it's something because I've like I've been a carpenter for years, and it, but I've always said, "Geez, I, I might try and build a guitar one day." And it's something I've never done yet. Maybe I'll maybe I'm going to wait till I'm like in my sixties or something. But it's something I, I've always thought I'd like to try. So one day, you never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be a nice thing to do to make it and play it. Yes, for sure, for sure. Uh, let's uh, let's go back a little bit to obviously when like when you started getting into music, you know, at a young age, and I suppose you were born into music and you always had music. But when you started kind of playing this and you started competing in the flacules and stuff, and you know, I see you've won a lot of All Ireland medals and everything. Was that something that you did with? great ease or did you really have to put a lot of work into it i mean was it something that came very naturally or did you have people pushing you how did that kind of come about that you wanted to compete so much well no i have to say nobody pushed nobody ever pushed me that was the one thing i was gently encouraged i suppose and the various members of the family would uh take out the whistle there and try and play a tune take up the fiddle and try and play a tune why don't you try and play a tune on the accordion so I would be playing, messing about with different instruments as a child growing up. But how it came about that I, 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 I'm singing at all is I remember my one day when I was about six years of age, maybe a little more, my sister Dolores was in the house and my mother was reading the, the local paper, the Tomb Herald, 
and she 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 saw in the Herald that the flag cure was the county flag was being held in Tume that year. So she she read the article and she she left down the paper and she looked at Dolores and she said, "Would you take that young lad, teach him a song? We'll see can he sing, and we'll put him into the flag cure." <laughs> so. I learned the song, I learned the first song was the May Morning Dew that I still sing today. And I went into Tume and I stood up on the stage and I sang my song and I was all nervous and I was shy and probably something that I've had to battle with most of my life. And uh, I went up on the stage and I won the competition. And then the next, the Connacht Snackyol was held a month later in Mount Bellew. So I was brought to that and I won that. And the All-Ireland that year was held in Dublin. So I was brought to Dublin for a weekend and I had the most amazing time with the McConnell family. Mickey McConnell, who wrote Only Our Rivers Run Free and Cormac and uh, Cottle McConnell, the whole family. They were uh, brilliant musicians and singers from Fermanagh. So I was there in Dublin at the Flag Hill. I was, think, the only child in my class, I think, that had been to Dublin at that age. So this, I thought, wow, if learning a couple of them songs is going to bring me to Dublin, if I keep at it, I wonder where, I bet, I bet I'll get to see more. And I've been at it ever since. And that was, it, that's the re, that's, that's, that was my challenge. I wanted to win so that I would get to the next town to sing at the next flag hall. That was what it was about. All the people we, we con, uh, that used to compete against me, um, sadly, one of the lads passed away only a month ago. That's Paul Burns from Ahaskra. Uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful singer and he was a good friend from where we were kids. We would run in, we would do the flag hole, we would sing at the competition, we would leave the parents to find out who won or who didn't win, and we would run out to town for the rest of the day and go playing. So there was about four lads of us. There was Vinnie Kilduff, Paul Burns, uh, uh, oh God. Um, from the board, the colleagues up there in the Sligo, oh, my head. But there were three or four of us that was kind of singing against each other. But who won? It didn't really matter. We just went out and played for the day, and it was a great adventure as well. So that's the joy I got out of it. Um, it was just so that I could see different different places, go to different places, and be brought different places. So I'm still at that. And then when later on, I did that for that that until I was about 15, and uh, 15 or 16. And then I kind of, I never wanted to be a professional musician because it was never about professionalism or making money from it or anything. My grandmother would never allow you to take anything for playing at a concert or playing at a session. She said, it's a God-given given gift, and you're supposed to share it. That's why you were given it. That's why it was given to you, to share it. So that has been the way, it's kind of the way I look at music even today. It's important to share what happened because I have no control over it. I did nothing to give me the sound or I suppose I put in the hours of learning the songs, learning the different techniques and so on. But, but actually to use it as a way of making a living. It kind of my grandmother wouldn't hear of it. It, it was, and it's that I think stuck with me today. I think the music is more important. If you play the music for a genuine reason, it will look after you. Because I think music, like any of the arts, they're a God-given gift. Very few of us who play music know where it came from, and are probably surprised that we actually have the ability to do something like that, to create something so beautiful. 
it's it's kind of it's not my possession. It comes through me, but it's not really mine. I can't own it, you know. So I, I think my objective is to share it. So that's what I do. So I was always playing music and singing songs. Sometimes I get paid for it. Sometimes I wouldn't. I sometimes I wouldn't even know the difference whether I did or not. I'd ask a day later, did we get something for that gig last night? Because God knows nobody goes in the music business to make a fortune. Not in it. Especially traditional music. It's a limited market, really. But that was not the point. The point of it was the love of it and the feeling it gave me when I was in good form and I am in good form. And you know it, Simon. When you're playing music and you just think, you don't even have to think. Your fingers are doing it. Your vocal cords are doing it. And you can go off in another world and just leave them do it. It's when you become conscious of them. That's when they begin to have flaws. You're hearing yourself singing out a tune. Oh, I'm pronouncing words wrong. But if you trust that it will come and it is there and all you have to do is open your mouth and the rest is looked after. That's the way I look at it. So it's uh, maybe it's an unusual way of looking at it. But as I say, I was always working with my hands. Like you, I was working in workshops and everything, building and all sorts. But the music was always something that I got great pleasure from. And that's the most important thing, to keep that, that, that connection with it. And as I say, I don't go around saying that, wow, I'm great. I sound like this or I can sing like that or I can play like that. I think I go around in amazement. I think, wow, where did that come from? But I actually enjoy that, you know. So it's a different, it, it, it's just the way I have a looking at it. Yeah, and, and, you know, you're right in that sense because I know myself, if I sit down and I'm kind of, you know, writing or composing or doing something, you get lost in the music. And when you're, when you're doing that and you're, you know, creating something, you don't think about money or you don't think about turning professional or you don't think about the music industry. All of that comes after. All of that comes like when you've done the song and, you know, you're maybe trying to show it to the world. You have other people saying, oh, now you have to try and sell it or now you have to try and make a few quid from it. And I think if uh, for a lot of musicians, if they could keep making music and just survive and be be comfortable, for them it would be enough. I mean... I think genuine musicians don't really care about the money, but you have to survive. But music is where it's all at. That's where it kind of gets you, your creative size and everything. And when you're in the middle of it, you don't care about all those other material things, no, do you? No, you don't. And, and I have no grow for money. It's a matter of fact, I think, is the ruination of the world, <clears throat> um, at, at least people's attitude towards it. I have no grow for it at all. I never have. Uh, it comes and goes. It, it, I just use it uh, out of necessity. Um, once I have enough to pay my bills and to survive and to continue doing this, then it's a, that's a joy. But I did a tour when I was young, when I was 17. In uh, well, No, I was 18. No, 17, actually. The year I was in the, in the States, I did a five-and-a-half-month tour in America. We, we, we toured from March to September. And by the end of that tour, when I got home, I left down the instrument and I didn't play it for about two years. And it was the business end of it. It was the struggle in that tour. It was a difficult tour. And when a lot of bands have found that there's a great dream about going to America and breaking America and all of this, but it is awful hard, hard work. 
you have to travel, you're in an airport at three or four o'clock in the morning, you don't get to bed until three or four o'clock the following morning, and you do that for months on end. And that that's what is called the professional musician. I just thought, no, it's killing my music, which it almost did. And I thought I can never again let the professionalism interfere with the love I have for music and the need I have to share it. The whole, the whole, the glamour and the glitz and the whiz kids that surround it and the managements and the people who want to suck the life out of entertainers and artists and musicians. I don't have time for them because they are messing with the God-given gift that a person has been given. And they make money out of it and they abuse it and abuse the people who do it. Not all cases, but the intention sometimes, I can smell it a mile off. What is the person's, I'll help you. Well, what does that really mean? Uh, you mean you're going to help me, but you're going to help yourself more. And to take the music, I've always been, since then, since about that, that year, 1982, I've been very careful of who I let tamper with my music or my career. When I began to do music and I recorded my first album, and I was asked to record it by Artie McGlynn, who sadly passed away only a couple of years ago. Now, Artie is the guitarist in the country. Like, there's no guitarist that I know that doesn't have admiration for Artie and his guitar playing. But when Artie, I met him in Inish Boffin one year, and Artie said, and he was playing, he was MD with Van Morrison for years at the time. And he was finishing up with Van, and he came to me in Inish Boffin, and he says, Sean, if you would like to record an album, I'd love to produce it for you. And about six months later, I think my wife, Virginia, we just got married, and Virginia said, why don't you record an album? I had been doing sessions and stuff, and I said, I will, if you manage me. She said, I'm a school teacher. I know nothing about the music business. I said, neither do I, but we'll learn and we'll do it together. Because I, if it comes to somebody else managing me, I'm not going to do it. So it has to be somebody I trust. So she managed me for as long as she was on the planet. And sadly, she passed away 10 years ago. But for 25, 30 years, the 25 years we were together, she managed my career. And that's it. I wouldn't give it out to somebody else. I would give up the music business. I would give up the professional music business before I would hand that gift into somebody else's hands. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's too precious for that. I think it's something that needs to be, it needs to be minded. It needs, and I appreciate it and I do mind it. And I certainly have no qualms about where it comes from because it's certainly not through me. It's not, it's not created by me. It's a gift I was given. So I suppose I have a kind of a, a weird kind of a way, quirky way of looking at life and the music business. And as I say, the God-given gifts I was given. So I kind of cherish it that yes. way. Yes, yeah. Like I've had people saying, oh, if you record a song, a particular song, it'll be a number one hit. Like if you're going to have a number one hit of the world, I would say, I don't actually have you're right, um, because the thing about it is, I think there are more people trying to feed off musicians and artists than there are musicians and artists. And there are people with no talent, but a talent for business and a talent for blood sucking. And they're thinking, oh, if, if he records that song now, it's a great song and it could make money and I'll be his manager and I'll get 30% or 20% or whatever I can get from him. And the problem is, especially with young artists who are very naive, 
that happens all the time and their careers are ruined by it. So it's sometimes better rather than earning millions and millions when you're 17 and in the end having no money, maybe, you know, mellow out a bit, choose who you work with and have a bit of money left when you're 50. <laughs> yeah, have enough to feed yourself the, the mashed bananas and stuff when you're up around that age. like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so listen, um, just I wanted to, to touch on there, obviously, you were working at, you know, you were doing welding and fabrication and stuff, and you went to London then, and you were, you know, uh, you were staying with Dolores and stuff, and you kind of got more into the music there, and I, were, were you running away from the music a bit, or from the, that industry where you're thinking, I just want to be a regular Joe and working on the sites? And did it kind of pull you back in? Was it hard? Were you, were you escaping it in some way? Well, I wasn't actually in the music business when I left uh, for London. I went over there when I was 17, and uh, 1979. And I was there for two and a half years, three years. But when I was over there, again, I met up with a band uh, called Shi Gui, and their singer had just left. And they asked me one night at a session, would I join the band? And I said, why not? So I went in, I joined the band, and um, we began to record an album called Round the World for Sport. And for the two and a half years after that, we went around the world for sport. We had a wonderful time. It was a six-piece band. And uh, it again, it, it, I was always working, and I was always singing and playing the music. They kind of went hand in hand. So it wasn't a separation or an escape or anything like that. It's just necessity really 1979 as i describe it there weren't enough tin cans to kick down the road for everybody that was unemployed like london was full of irish music and full of irish people when i went over there at that time like you had all the great dance halls that you'll hear the the, the stories about the camden town and kintish town and the, the you know the irish community in london that time was huge there were sessions and parties seven nights a week and we were working seven days a week because the building trade was huge as well. So I think I did two and a half years with one night's sleep. You know, it felt like that. It was just go, 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 go all the time. And it was wonderful, a wonderful experience. And again, at that age, it was a wonderful learning. It was a great experience, a great opening of life. And I suppose a broadening of horizons to a young fella of my at that time to land in London. Sure, the world was my oyster. I could not... I could not get enough of it. Like I used to come out in from sessions at two and three o'clock in the morning and I'd get up at five and half five to go off to go out and work on the building site. So it was just, but it was a pleasure doing it. It's not as if it was work. It was just pleasure. Yes, yes, yes. I can imagine, you know, because there's nothing better, especially for younger people to go and travel and see the world, whether it be the UK or the Netherlands or America, or whatever, go and experience that different culture. And if you can find that niche, you know, where if you love singing or playing the guitar or whatever, if you can find fellow musicians in that country or in that culture that you can kind of share your skill with, I mean, and creativity, that's a wonderful thing. And those are great times, no? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as I say, I was happy enough to arrive in London where it was thriving. It was absolutely thriving. And they even had the, the Sins of Ireland Festival. It was a, a festival that went on, I think, for 10 days in London. 
in every venue around around the, 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 the city. I actually even did a St. Patrick's Day, Day concert in the Playboy Club. That's how popular Irish music was. You wouldn't normally think of the putting those two together, the Playboy Club and Irish music. But I suppose the Irish like to have the crack and they like the women and, you know, the Playboy Club is <laughs> what a place for it. And the Bunny yeah. Girls. And the Bunny Girls are going around with it. Yes, as a Guinness. Wow, wow, wow. That's amazing. That's really good. Absolutely. The bunny girls, they were running around. We had them run off their feet because they were coming with small glass Guinness to it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> She'd only have the tray emptied onto the table and of course there was the same again, please. So I think we kept, we wore the shoes off one of them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant, brilliant. So... You know, when you were in your, when you were 17, 19, that kind of age, you know, besides the Irish traditional music and, uh, you know, the influence from home and from, as you said, all the people that come to your, used to come to your house, like, did you listen to much music on the radio or did you listen to much vinyl records? Like, were you into Elvis, the Beatles? Was there other music that kind of inspired you and influenced you? Well, I, I'm the type, I, I enjoy all music. Uh, I don't enjoy, I enjoy a lot of music. I, I like a lot of different types of, of music. Um, and I, I've always listened to it. And even in the sessions here in Carrack, as a child growing up, if people came in to visit and there was a little session or party going on, most people would give a party piece before they go out the door. And it didn't matter what that was. It could be a poem, it could be a song, it could be a rock and roll number, it could be anything. But for somebody to do something like that, and that was the respect they gave it. They didn't care what genre it was. If it sounded nice, it was good, and the person was, was nice playing it, then that was it, really. I suppose they, the way they looked at it was, if the music touches you, if you feel music grabbing you, or you hear a note or a song or a sound, you think, oh, I want to hear more of that. That's just kind of the way I am. So I've always, I have to say that I was a big fan growing up uh, of country music, American country music, like Dolly Parton would be, I would stand in the snow listening to that girl sing, you know, the same with Don Williams, uh, people like that. I, I thought, I think that what they do. So I think a lot of that would have rubbed off in my singing now. Like I heard Dolly Parton do a song when I was only a child. And I forget what song it was, but when I heard what she was doing with the ornamentation and the way she would sing it and the way she would phrase the words, I thought, but sure, that's the same as I'm doing. That's, that's something, it's the same kind of stuff. It has just crossed the Atlantic. And I suppose that was a great eye-opener for me and to, to realize in later life that it actually was the same music, you know. So, yeah, I liked all sorts of music to put it in. But the quick answer. And and you know, obviously, then you know when you were you know with with Shigui uh, or is that, if that's the right pronunciation. Um, after that, you know, you you joined Real Union with with Dolores and stuff and Martin O'Connor, and that was you did a lot of touring and that was quite intensive too, wasn't it? Well, that's the band that I toured America with for the five and a half months. Uh, Real Union. That was uh, with my sister Dolores, her husband John Faulkner, and you mentioned the great Martin O'Connor and, and the accordion, and the piper from Monaghan called Eamon Curran. Now, we had great adventure as well during that tour. I look back on it now, and I just have 
I learned so much in that tour. It was amazing and got to see so much of, of the States because it was one of those tours that we said we'd go over there and we, we could do a festival each weekend and that would keep us going and then we would fill up the midweeks with a few gigs. But the trouble is about America in the summertime is all the, in, the indoor gigs closed down and there are just the festivals. So we would find ourselves, we'd have a, a festival each weekend, but we'd have five or six days off in the middle of the week. Now, that left for, if I was playing a concert someplace like North Carolina, I'd go out on the stage and before the end of the concert, I'd say, well, we're in town for two or three days. Anybody got an ad any adventure I'd like to do? Uh, I said, I love fishing, love whitewater rafting, love outdoors and everything. So I'd always end up with somebody saying, oh, come down tomorrow, we'll go fishing, or come down tomorrow, we'll go rafting, or, you know. So I set up a, a kind of a tour of adventure for myself within the tour. So it was magical. I went and stayed with people for days in their houses, like, and I stayed with one man in a log cabin that was about two miles off the road. You had to go across two swinging bridges to get to there. No electricity, no running water. It was just a fabulous kind of tour for that kind of adventure and I used it and again I was of an age where I was fit for it and, and uh, nimble and fit and able. Wow wow that's really cool because I mean for for lots of artists you know going on tour they're probably stuck in hotels and they're doing promotional work and they're doing everything on the off days but that was great because you were having these mini holidays and out in the sticks as they say and you know rafting and fishing and shooting and every kind of stuff so that was an amazing adventure yeah it was and it was just an idea i got with um i was talking to some person one night i can't even remember what town and i we got talking on fishing now i love fishing i've been fishing all my life of all types of fishing so i i went oh just come just come and stay you know what i like in america they say come and stay they mean it so you'd go around and stay and they'd look after me for a couple of days and go off on whatever adventure it would be. And yeah, it was great. It was really, really enjoyable. But it took its toll from a professional standpoint, from the, the music. After a while, you know, there's only so much stuff you can do. And we were all broke. Uh, we were living from hand to mouth. It was uncomfortable a lot, of, plenty of times. Um, I even sold a set of pipes to keep going over there. A set of pipes that, because of the temperatures, they were made here and uh, they were actually made in London. But uh, when I brought them to America, because of the temperature change, especially in the summertime, I couldn't play them in tune. But one night, one night, a guy in Ann Arbor, after doing a gig, a gig in Ann Arbor, uh, came up to me and he says, "Wow," he says, "I really like the pipes." I said, "Would you like to own a set?" And he says. Yeah. Well, I said, would you want them? He said, yeah. So we job done, deal done, pipes gone. <laughs> That's brilliant because, you know, as the fella says, you were probably looking at them and thinking, these aren't worth a damn now. So I either pack them away and leave them till I go home or throw them in the bin or do something. But the guy came at the right time and said, I'll take them. And you were like, perfect. I'm living, you know, hand to mouth. I need a few quid and you're here with a few quid and you want my pipe. So fire away. Yeah. 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 And you know what? I never missed the pipes, but what I did miss is I had them for, for a good few years 
and uh, I had the, the case was all full of stickers from the different festivals I was at and the different countries and all it was just uh, we actually used the case cover on the Shi Gui album because it had all the stickers of different festivals in it and I let that off as well that's the thing I do miss not the pipes but the, <laughs> the case yes yes wow so so I know like um I know you had other collaborations and stuff with, you know, Arcady and, you know, so on. We'll talk about those in a moment. But let's um, let's just talk about, you know, your solo career. So when you, I know you, you kind of, you released your first uh, album in All Heart, No Roses in 1994. So you kind of went solo in 1993 or so, I think. So tell us about that and what kind of, brought you to that decision where you thought I want to do it on my own now and I want to kind of have a different sound or I want to explore, you know, doing it myself. Tell us how you came to that process. Well, again, that's back to the, uh, what I said earlier about meeting Arthur McGlynn. It was after that that I met Arthur McGlynn. I had been asked by a couple of record companies in America during that long tour if I would record for them. And, uh, I said no, because I, I didn't want it at that stage. I, I, I really didn't want to be part of the music business. I wanted to play music, but I wasn't too bad. I, I didn't really want to be part of the business. And um, when I came back and I met Artie McGlynn, and we did, that, uh, we did that first album, I hadn't a clue, really, Simon. All I was doing is I was playing a few sessions in Galway, and the album came out. And all of a sudden, it was kind of in the charts, and it was being played on radio, and the phone was ringing, will I, will I go here and go there to do concerts? So it was something that just kind of crept up on me. I wasn't ready for it, or I didn't even think. I was just recording an album. I didn't even really understand the process, because I was only playing music all my life before then. And now it was there was the kind of a professionalism coming into it, or I was expected to be a, more of a professional in what I was doing but I just sat down with Artie we went into a studio he arranged the, 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 the songs that I was singing and we, we discussed them and we, we brought them around to the first album All Heart No Roses and when that was released then um, that was really it, 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 it uh, as I said the, the phone began to ring and everything but unfortunately that first album I released with a record company here in Ireland uh, it was a, a there were shysters really, and for the second album they wouldn't record it. They didn't they didn't want to release it. They didn't want to put a proper cover in it. They didn't do any publicity or anything else. So I couldn't move forward with my career. So they weren't they weren't cooperating with me at all. So I ended up I had to bring them to court because I had an album a contract with them for five albums. So I couldn't stay with those people who they're like the people I described earlier. They're the leeches of the music business. And um, they probably still are the leeches of the music business. And I hope there's some of them looking at this. But uh, they they hurt us a lot because I had to buy them, although they were on 24 breaches of contract, I had to bring them to the high court in Dublin. Because of the way the uh, company law works, is they can... The court case was set for maybe a year and a half later. But they, they, my, my barrister came to me and he says, well, they're going to close down the day before the court and they will open up as a different company and you will have to start the whole process again. So he says, what can you afford to give them to buy yourself out? 
Now, we just had built our first house with an 18% mortgage. Our first daughter, Marilise, was just born. I had given up my job because I was, I was going to start up. I had built a workshop in where the new house was in Tipperary, and that's what I was going to concentrate on. So Virginia was working, teaching in, in Nina. So that was the only income we had. So we had nothing. But I had to come out. We, I had to come up with a considerable amount of money, which I spent the next twenty years paying off. So the day that day in the in the in the court, this the, the barrister says you're going to have to pay them because they will let it run. They don't want to move on it or anything. And in two years' time, they will close down. They will open up under a different name. You will have to go after them again. In the meantime, you won't be able to record work, sign up with end because it's all under litigation. So you won't be able to do anything. So he says, like, weigh up the options and tell me what you think. But he says, you will have to buy your way out. He says, it's the only advice I can give you. So we didn't really know how to or where to get it, but we did. And we begged, borrowed and st stole it, as they say, to make up the figures. So we did make up the figures. But it did... It brought me into the music business in a way that I had no choice because it had to work. If it didn't work, we were on the road. So, in other words, I didn't have time for thinking sentimentally about life or thinking sentimentally about the music or how precious our lives were on the line, our daughter's future was on the line, our home was on the line. So it had to work. I had no choice. It had to work. I wouldn't have been able to make enough in one job. So I was working days and doing all sorts of other jobs, but I was playing as much as I could each and every night to just pay those those people. I had to sell the first house that we had built for the 18% 18, 18 mortgage, and I had to sell another eight houses in 22 years to pay back those people. Wow. That's crazy. So that's kind of... That's how I was brought into the music business as a professional. It wasn't, it wasn't all fluffy and, oh, I just came from a traditional background. And, uh, you, just, you just flow straight into a, this is what happened. You just flew, you were riding on the backs of the people that were before you or that kind of talk. It, it's not like that. I was, I was brought into it, an abrupt entry into the music business where I had to make a, de a decision that it had to succeed, I had to work, and I had to make it happen. I had the responsibility for my family. So uh, I began at that stage, I had to treat it differently, which I did. And I suppose in a way, I had to go at it ruth ruthlessly, more ruthlessly than I would have even cared to live the life. You know, it kind of, it's just necessity, Simon, just necessity. I mean, I, yeah, because, see, that's the side of it. You know, everybody sees the side of music where there's success and awards. And I know All Heart No Roses received a lot of reviews and was, you know, chosen as debut folk album of the year by Q Magazine. So, I mean, those are brilliant. But people don't see the dark side of the music industry where you have to take the record company to court because they won't pay you and they want to hold you and lock you down and stop you recording. People don't hear of this and maybe they don't want to hear of it, but it's a really hard life. And 
I mean, nowadays, I think artists should be informed of things like this before they make any big decisions. You know, you're there's there's unscrupulous people out there and they just want to lock you into these contracts and own you forever. I see them. They're still in existence, Simon. And as you say, there's young people coming up and they're naive and they're promised they're promised things. And they want to succeed in what they're doing. And they're promised things by those people that they think are genuine. And they really are only leeches that's living off the backs of their, their gifts. And I think it's, a, it's something that really annoys me. I hate to see it going on with other younger people and younger bands being exploited in any way. And I do know, I do know that it's going on. And I do know people out there doing it. And how they're getting away with it continuously, I don't know. But even like, you see... Younger people, they'll be offered something on a tour in America and you go, like if when I was 17, wow, absolutely. I don't care who wants money. Do you know what I mean? It's who cares about, about it's just get out and, and have the adventure and uh, have a four or five month tour in America where you're going to be dry, driving around or flying around, meeting people, playing in places that you would never play in or see otherwise. That's adventure, and that appeals, you know, they, those leeches appeal to that in people, and especially younger, vulnerable people, uh, getting sucked in by them, by false promises and, and, and that. I think it's not right to do ever do, for a person to do that for somebody with, that has got talent. I think it's, it's a sin. It's wrong. It's wrong for somebody to take advantage of an artist like that because artists are not, they don't think like other people. They don't think like business people. Actually, we're the worst people in the world to let in here any kind of business. I am as well, and I know that. That's why I have somebody else do it for me. Because it, it, it's not where my interest is. It's, it's somebody else has to do it for me. Now, when you allow somebody to do that and take, that, to take control over a chunk of your life, your whole life, really, then that you, you're placing a lot of trust in that person. So you're giving away an awful lot to them. So you have to be really, really cautious about who you allow that to happen, uh, who you allow to do that uh, or let into that position. Be careful of who you let into that position in your life. In any, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're doing. But, um, so that's the story on my, my adventures in the music business. Do you know what, Simon? It's been up and down and it's an, it's, I've never intentionally planned it. Yeah, for, for sure. It just happens, you know. Well, listen, you know, while, while we're here now and we're talking about those when you went in solo, maybe you'll do a song for us at the moment, will you? You know what? I haven't opened my mouth to another person all morning since I spoke to you, Simon. So I'd say, I'd say it will find a bit ropey. You'd find it very ropey now. <laughs> a song that I heard many years ago is a song called Satisfied Mind. And I like to do a kind of a, my own little version. It's a kind of a bluesy, traddy type of a strange concoction. But anyway, here we right. go. Right. Fire away. How many times have you heard people say, if I had his money, I would do things my way. But little do they know that it 
it's so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind for money can buy back you when you're old a friend when you're lonely all peace for your soul there's one thing for certain when it comes my time I'm gonna leave this old world with a satisfied mind. When my life is over and my time has run out, my friends and relation I'm gonna be there's no doubt and there's one thing for certain when it comes my time I'm gonna leave this old Brilliant. That was lovely. That was really nice. I, I know that song. I've heard that song before. It's a really nice song. It is. They do it. It's a country version. It's done with a how many times. Yeah. Yeah. It's lovely. It's lovely. So, so listen, uh, let's go on. Just, you know, talk about your family. You, you have two daughters. I know you, Virginia passed in 2010. How old are your daughters now? Ah, uh, they're old women. They're not 30, 30, late 20s and 30. They won't hear this, Simon, we're all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, it, it, was a, it was a tough time for you when Virginia died. And I know, obviously, I, I was reading there, obviously, you you tried everything you could, but it's like that with cancer. It's, a, it's one of these things that it's a battle that people are fighting on all fronts and you know and i and i one thing i never realized and i have to say thank you very much because i don't know if you know this or if you remember this but my mother is francis kelly francis madden in Curafin, and i only found out a few months ago that she she was undergoing cancer treatment last year and you gave her a call one day and you had a chat with her and i never knew this my mother never told me and she said to me, oh, yeah, Sean Keane rang me one day and we had a great chat and fair play to him. And my sister, Sharon Fitzmaurice, I think, was talking to you. And you called my mother. And I want to say thank you very much because, you know, it was a hard time in her life. And she's come through it now. And she's still not fully through it. But, I mean, you know, that was a very nice thing you did. So thank you very much for that. 
Not at all, Simon. I didn't even know that she was your mother now, to be honest, but I do remember the call, and a very nice call it was too. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. What can you say about that ugly disease? It's uh, it's taken too many good people, too many good young people. It's just, uh, it's, I suppose it's no, 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 no different to this pandemic we're going through. A lot of people are suffering quite a lot with, 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 with those things. But uh, I suppose, again, that's life, I suppose, Simon. What else can we say or do about it? We certainly have no control. Yes, yes, yes. And Sean, like, obviously, you know, because you had mentioned you and Virginia had worked together, you know, you were husband and wife, but you were, she was your manager and you were partners. And, you know, when, when she passed away, then, you know, um, obviously it impacted your, you know, whole music profession and your, how you work with the industry. How did you come back from that? How did you say, okay, what do I do now? Do I get a manager? Do I do it myself? What was your reaction and to how you would proceed? Well, again, uh, Virginia hadn't, uh, she wasn't long gone when the phone was ringing with uh, a few people offering their help and their, uh, yeah, uh, people who would like to look after my career and manage it and so on. And of course, as we, we said earlier, I said no to, the, to those offers. Um, and I didn't really know what to do with it because Virginia had, I knew no other manager really. Uh, and we just had a way of working and she was good at it and people loved to deal with her. And she was a no-nonsense lady. So that was a breath of fresh air for a lot of people who were dealing in the music business. She kind of told it as it was and she got great respect for that. And she certainly protected me and my career and the music. She... She didn't tolerate an, an awful lot of nonsense uh, from people. She was a wonderful, wonderful lady. But um, I was here for a few years. Excuse me, Sam. <coughs> I was here for a few years on my own with the dog. And I didn't really have, I suppose the best way to put it is when they say that the, the wind has sucked out your sails. Well, that's really what happened. It's just I deflated. I didn't see much sense or reason to an awful lot of stuff. And it's just, um, it, yeah, sure, people who have lost people they love know this. They go through that. And I suppose it's, it's not unique to me. Everybody would go through it. But I remember there came a day um, when I thought, do you know what? That if she's looking at me now and all the work she did and all the effort and the decisions we had to make, even when the times were hard, I thought, is this disrespectful of me to the work that she had done? Was I not to continue it? So I was, uh, I thought, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, as I said, I'm not a businessman and I, I'm not good at, at doing stuff that needs to be done in the music business. I like to play it and I like to share it and everything else. But the, the organization, which there is an awful lot, if you know it yourself, Simon, there's an awful lot in organizing a concert. It's not one phone call. There's a lot of arrangements to make and everything else that has to go along with it. And you can't be forgetting it in bits and pieces either. So that's for a different person. So I couldn't find, and I didn't even look for that person. But I used to do a lot of work with the Brothers of Charity in uh, Kilcornan, which is outside of Orden Moor here in County Galway, Clarenbridge, sorry. In, in Galway and 
the man who ended up, um, he used to work in there, a man called Johnny B. Broderick. And Johnny B. was was working in the, the, in the centre there. And um, I would go down there and play music and do gigs. And Johnny would give me a ring to do whatever was needed to be done down there. I'd go down and do little bits and pieces. And he had given up. When, a lot of the, when the whole uh, mental health um, situation changed in Ireland a number of years ago, and they decided to not use the likes of uh, the Brothers of Charities, Kilcornan House, where it was a centre where a lot of people with special needs were living there. And they thought, well, you cannot separate people from the community. So the, now all the people who were in there, they, they were sent out to and given houses and so on. Different arrangements were made to get them back into the community and into society and as part of society, not be having them behind walls and behind gates. So Johnny's job was to, at that time uh, rearranging that move and uh, looking after the, the accommodation and everything for them. But when that job finished, so did Johnny's career in the health business. So one day I was just sitting here, I think he phoned me. He had been writing songs. And I think he sent me a song. And I thought, you know what? For what I know of that man, I'm going to ask him, will he manage my career? So I went to Johnny and I phoned him up and I said, can I meet you, Johnny? And he says, yeah. And I phoned him up and I said, this is the situation. Will you manage my career? And he said, I'm a nurse. So he said, I know nothing about the music business. And I said, believe it or not, I said, 30 years ago, that's exactly what Virginia said to me. She said, I'm a teacher. I know nothing about the music, music business. So I said, you are exactly the person I want. If, if, if you do it, I said. So we had a few wonderful years up until last March when COVID struck. And we're still in contact a few times every day because the business is still going on in various ways. But I could trust my, my career and my life and put it into his hands because I knew he wasn't involved in the music business. And he'd made a wonderful job. He's written some great songs for me. And we've worked great together. Um, it's a pleasure, I have to say. And I was so lucky to find him. But had I not found Johnny, well, life would have thrown me some other kind of curve and I'd be doing something else or whatever. Who knows, Simon? But uh, as they said, the good Lord works in mysterious ways. Yeah, well, I mean, that, but that's brilliant. And it just shows you sometimes that the real, true, genuine people that look after you are not in that industry at all, that you have to find them outside it, and they'd be surprised that they can do such a good job, but maybe they can do a better job and they have more of your welfare and your interests at heart than an actual manager who's in it for the percentage. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, Johnny has refused things that had would have been good financially to do. Uh, he'd say, ah, I don't think you should do that. What do you want to do that for? And I'd say, yeah, you're right. You're dead right. You know, so he looks at it the same way as I do. I think we've been probably, I've been doing this now for so long as I'm not going to change either because I do have the confidence that it's it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay and life will be okay. I trust that it's going to be fine and it's it is what it is. And you can worry about it all you like, but it's not going to change the future or the past. Just, I was mentioning there, obviously, with some collaborations you've done, like obviously with Arcady and with Citizen Kane or Citizen Keen. Um, 
So tell us a bit about some of those working after being solo for a number of years and then coming back and doing stuff with your brothers and everything. And then obviously working with Arcade years ago. Do you, do you like that? Do you like black playing in a group? Does that give you the same sense of um, kind of fulfillment or do you prefer being solo? I loved being in a group musically. Musically, it was fabulous. Being with Arcade, it was fabulous. There was eight eight musicians, Shannon Shannon, Francis Black, Cahill Hayden, like Ringo McDonough, like excellent musicians and wonderful people to be with. And again, when Arcade started out, we were eight people. We were playing in places that would hold 50 people. Economically, no, it's not good. Musically and adventure-wise and interesting, it was top class. It, it's great doing doing stuff like that. I've always liked to do different stuff and to collaborate with different people on different things because it's a whole new slant and it's another little road or little avenue that you don't know what it's going to be unless you explore it or where it's going to take you. If you take a, just a, a right turn off the road this minute, you don't know maybe where it's going to end and you don't know what treasures you're going to find in it. And you're going to probably find some potholes too, but... Nevertheless, I always think that the adventure is worth the, it's worth the risk, it's worth the effort to, to do that. Uh, being, in, being solo, what it did, I was, I was conscious that I wanted to have control over what I did and where I'm going to be. When you're in a band with eight people, with a manager, now there's nine people that has a say in what you're going to do, where you're going to be, and what kind of music you're going to play because there has to be a general consensus, which is easy musically with a five-piece band, but exactly how to move that forward. We had meetings about meetings and about discussions of how to go forward, and we always seemed to come to uh, an abrupt end with discussions. <laughs> Eight people with musical opinions. It's very interesting stuff can happen. But it can get a bit monotonous then when final decisions have to be made, you know. So I thought the whole process is a bit too cumbersome for me. I'd rather to see an opportunity or see something and I will do that or I won't do that. I have only a decision to make for myself and the people <coughs> who thankfully work with me, like my musicians, the people who, who trust in what I do. And they trust me to treat them right to not bring them on a tour where they're going to be having long journeys between concerts, getting up at all hours of the morning to make flights. I make the tours as comfortable as possible and as enjoyable as possible. Like, if I think that there's a long drive between two gigs, we'll take a day off. We'll, we'll make the journey in two days and we'll see a bit and learn a bit as we go along. You know, slow down rather than trying to be you know, so I think that there's there's mutual respect there for for the way that we treat each other. You know, that's important. So, yeah, we have a way of working now. We hardly even need to speak each other to Pat and Fergus and myself. Like we just, it's a phone call. We're just there. We do it, and it's uh, it's, it's it's a lovely experience playing with the lads. Brilliant. That's really good. And um, I want to talk in a minute about just the, 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 the Cara sessions, the Sunday sessions. But just before that, you played in 2018, I think it was, with the RT Concert Orchestra. That must have been an amazing experience. 
It was. It was a, a lovely experience. It was. Indeed, I recorded it. I recorded an album called Gratitude from that. Uh, it was. It, it, it wasn't my first. I worked first. The first time I worked with the, the, the orchestra was with a, a concert with George Merton, the fifth Beatle in, uh, in Dublin, in the National Concert Hall. He came to Ireland with an orchestra with backing band singers and he wanted to perform to perform Beatles songs, songs that he would have produced for the lads. And uh, he sent me Blackbird. And uh, they, there was another couple of songs as well that were going doing as groups and, and so on. But uh, Blackbird was one that was just bordering right on the, 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 the limits of my, my, my range, vocal range. And I thought, oh, God, I don't know if I can sing this song or that. So I went off to the rehearsal room, uh, rehearsal rooms in Dublin, <clears throat> and uh, everybody, I arrived at lunchtime. That was my, my call time. But uh, most people had gone from the rehearsal room. Only the guitar player was sitting there. And he was actually, as I walked in, he was rehearsing Blackboard. And I walked over to him. We introduced each other. And... Uh, I said, do you mind if I sing along with you? Oh, he says, I'd love to. I said, I want to practice this. He says, and so do I. I said, I need to practice it as well because of this high notes, those high notes that are in it. <laughs> so he did the intro and we were singing away and singing away. And as we were singing, we were kind of close to each other singing away. And then I noticed this presence just behind my shoulder. So I finished the song anyway and I turned around and it was George Martin standing. He was a tall man. He was standing just hovering over my shoulder. And I looked up at him and I said, is that, way, is that the way you want me to sing that? And he said, I can see nothing wrong with it. It's perfect for me. If you're happy with it. I said, I'm happy with it. So we're both happy. Where we go. Wow. But he was a wonderful man. And uh, he knew that I was recording. He had heard that I was recording the album, uh, No Stranger. And uh, he said, why don't you record the song? And I sa he said, you're making a great job of that song. It's different, but he says it's really unique and different. He said, why don't you record it? And I said, well, I'm not sure if it'll fit in with the other songs I have already recorded or what. But I left it like that, and it, the conversation was left hanging. But the concert's finished anyway, and uh, I got to meet him a good few times during the concert, just to sit down for a chat, and the stories were great. He was a lovely man. But uh, just a week later, on a Sunday morning at about 10 o'clock, the phone rang, and I was actually still in bed, and I took oh, lifted up the receiver, and he said, oh, George Martin here. And he says, are you going to record that song? And I said, well, the very fact that you phoned me on a Sunday morning to ask me the question, will I? I said, there can only be one answer. I will. So he said, well, if you do, I'm going to send you the original music, the original music score and arrangement that I did for the Beatles. So about three days later, she, uh, uh, an envelope came through the door with a stack of A4 pages of the arrangement he did for Blackbird for the Beatles. So I recorded the song, and uh, yeah, that'll be one of the experiences I think that stands out in my mind uh, in collaboration-wise as well. It was, a, it was a nice experience, nice memory. Wow, that's really nice. I mean, that's a great memory to have, and you know, he was such a great man and left such a, an amazing legacy. So it was great that you were part of it, and it was great that he appreciated the way you sang it and that 
he wanted to hear your new version and for you to have it on your album. So, I mean, that's some, a great memory to look back on. So let me um, just, you know, talk about your last album or your latest album, New Day Dawning. So how did you, like, did you do that anyway, different to your previous albums? Uh, no, I didn't really. Um, when I when I go to, when I'm recording an album, it's really what it is, is songs that I've gathered up as I go along between albums, or maybe there'll be songs, some songs that I would have heard years ago, but they're kind of still in the head. And I put them together, I'd find a nucleus for the album. And then I would build around that with the material. And the, it's hard to describe, it's like asking a painter, how would you paint a picture? It's kind of, it's one of those things. I kind of know how it happens in my own head, but I cannot explain what that is because there's probably no sense, no reason, logic to it. You know what I mean? But yeah, New Day Dawning was that. That's the. That's what I was getting at that time. That's the life I was living at that time. It was a New Day Dawning. Virginia was gone. My career, as I had known it, because I left maybe three or four. God, I don't really know how many years that I hadn't played. Because of that, I it was like a, a new beginning. It was a new start. Johnny had come on as a new manager. Uh, so it was a new day dawning. And that's the way I look at it. And that's the feeling and the energy that I got from it. And it was just a whoosh into where I am today. It kind of carried me out of the, out the bleakness of bereavement, I suppose, is the best way you could describe it, which we all know. Um, it's not unique to me. It's just life, and it kicks us in different ways. It's how we react to it, I suppose. And again, that probably wasn't a conscious decision. It was more of a subconscious thing, like, like what would Virginia say to me if she saw me doing what I'm doing? Wasting my time, not building on what we had created. So she basically gave me a spiritual kick in the ass, I suppose, about, about the best way you could probably put it. You know, obviously now with the lockdown and everything, and now you're doing the, the Sunday sessions, the Cara Sunday sessions on Facebook and everything. I mean, that's kind of, I don't want to say it's it's um, given your career a new turn, but it's it's kind of brought you out there to maybe other people around the world that mightn't have known your music or mightn't have heard you. Because obviously, you know, people scrolling through Facebook and, you know, this site being recommended and the, it's a live session. Has that opened new doors for you in different ways? Well, it has in the sense of actually dealing, working with the technology. I didn't realize that sit, sitting in front of a camera would give me any sense of satisfaction because I like to be in front of an audience. I like the energy generated by a hall full of people there with the one intention and that there's... we're however many people you say, a hundred people in a hall that come from all various parts of the country, various ages, stages of life, different things going on in their heads, completely different people, most of them strangers to each other. But yet for that one, uh, an hour and a half or two hours that we are all together in a room, that one energy, that, that one energy that's created is what I love to, 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 to feel. It's like that that group of people, that energy comes into a harness of between the audience and me and back and forth. So I think the audience are as big a part of a, of a concert as 
the people on the stage. So when I go out on the stage, usually, I don't write a set list. I like to, we have set songs that we will probably do in the, in the, in the, in the set. But I like the, the night to roll. If I do a set list, I'm presuming that the people who are there is going to be the same as the last gig that I did or the next gig that I will do, which is never the case. If I was to do two gigs in the one place, a half an hour apart, there would be two totally different ventures. The only thing that would have common is the venue. The energy would have totally changed. It would be a whole new vibe. You'd be feeling something totally different after those other people. Not that it's good or bad, or it's just different. So I think that if I go out with the intention of, if I go out with a set list written, I am now kind of intentionally setting the mood of the night before I have arrived at all, without knowing the people, without seeing the venue, without anything. Besides, if I go in there and I walk out on the stage and I say, well, hello, folks, what will we do tonight? Do you know, that's what's going on in my head. It's like... It's what, what do you want me to do? And it's, that's an energetic thing. It's not really, they're not going to shout up the request. You feel the way that the, the energy is moving. And it can be raucous and something at sometimes. But it's like, I like that to, to be organic. I like all of that to be organic. Rather than me sit, writing out a set list and this is the tunes that we're going to do for the rest of the tour. I couldn't do that. I like it to be spontaneous. I like it to be spontaneous for me and for the audience, not to be pretending that it's spontaneous, that it really is, because it cannot be a, the genuine reaction of a spontaneous, maybe even forgetting the words of a song I wouldn't have sung for a while. Who cares? What's the big problem? So you're going to forget the words of a few songs? Who cares? The fact that you make an attempt, that in itself creates a different energy in the room. So I've had more satisfaction out of a mistake than I have had from perfection. That's true. I, I think that's um, that's a, a great way to look at it, that you don't have to be perfect. You have to try your best and you have to just, you know. Yeah. And some people look at it and go, oh, I made a mistake. So listen, um, Sean, I'm going to let you go now. And I want to thank you very much for doing the interview. It's been amazing. You know, I've, you've, you've, you've told me a lot of great stories and, you know, you've, um, it's been very informative and very interesting and, and people are going to love it. So before we let you go, I just want to ask you like this year, you know, for the rest of the year or next year, what kind of ideas or objectives do you think you have would you will you record another album in the next year or two you know will you wait till lockdown's over what kind of plans do you have well i'm probably going to be doing uh, an album i would say probably before the end of this year i there's a there's a few bits and pieces now that i've 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 uh, gathered up and i'd like to put them to, excuse me i'd like to put them together it's hard to know, like, the, the tours that I planned for last year that were postponed and put on to this year are now being postponed and put on to next year. So we're all just rolling with the punches as, as, as they come, I think, at the minute, Simon. So I'm no different. But I have Cara Cottage, which is great. And um, now there's a, an incentive starting up here in Ireland. Uh, I'm going to have it next, next, well, in a couple of weeks' time. 
there's some people from the concert orchestra that I played with there um, are going, going to hospitals, nursing homes, and setting up a little PA and a, a little pagoda outside, socially distanced and everything else, to just entertain some of those people that are that have been separated from their families and can't, especially people in nursing homes that can't see their families and haven't seen them for 15 months. To go and to 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 entertain them for a, for a couple of hours. So it's something that's been approved by the HSE and the government are backing it and everything. So I'm going to be at that for the rest of this year as well. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, which I'd like to be part of. Uh, I think it's it's uh, right at the minute, my own sister, Christina, is in hospital in Dublin and none of us can go to see her. And it's it's a strange thing. It's uh, it's it's it's. Uh, it is a bit of a strange thing. So whatever we can do to bring a bit of light or comfort or a joy to people for, for an hour of a day, then we'll do it. So I'm going to do that and I can't wait to, I'm really looking forward to, to doing that. And I'm going to carry on in Cara Cottage. I'm going to spend a little bit more work, time in the workshop as well, Simon. I have a good few bits and pieces to make. Uh, and I have a few whistles now to make as well because a few people phoned up I want one of them. I said, I hope you're, you're, you're going to wait for a while for it. I don't mind. I don't care. I'll wait for it. I'll wait for it. So I'm going to make a few of those as presents for people. And, and that's, uh, yeah. That, that's great. I mean, and, and, you know, as you said, you could be like singing, oh, geez, I won't have time to go on tour now. I'm busy making whistles all the time. But I think it's brilliant, you know, and it's, it's good for the mind, as they say. And I'm sorry to hear about your sister, Christine. I hope she, you know, improves. I hope she gets better. And um, we'll, we'll, I mean, you know, I have to thank you again for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you on. And, you know, I really enjoyed our talk and enjoyed the music. And I'm going to ask you one last thing. I'm going to ask you to maybe sing us out with, and I'm going to ask you to pick your favorite song to sing. What's your favorite song to sing to send the viewers home? <laughs> well, I suppose you just said it, a song called Home. I do one verse of it, time. And thanks a million for taking the interest. And to all your listeners, uh, thanks a million for having me on. And uh, keep safe and well and sure we'll meet in real life. We might get some sparks hopping off those instruments you have hanging behind you there on the walls sometime uh, or someday there, Simon. So we might, we might. We'll have a bit of a session. <laughs> a bit of a hoolie. All right, here we go, Simon. God bless. Keep well, sir. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. The only thing I see is just the heat rising off the road. The rainbows I keep chasing keep on fading before I find my clock of gold. And more and more I'm thinking that the only treasure that I'd ever know are long ago and far behind. Wrapped up in my memories of home. Claude, Simon, thank you so much indeed, sir. Thank you, thank you, Sean. Thank you. Okay, I hope everybody enjoyed that. That was an interesting chat with Sean Keane, and he filled us in on some parts of his life and, you know, some interesting stories there. So we hope you enjoyed it. And Sean will be back with us again, hopefully in the future on the show, and we really enjoy having him on. He's wonderful storyteller and a wonderful singer and amazing voice. 
Thanks very much again, Sean. Okay, moving on to next week's guest. So next week, we have Mr. Todd Hoffman from Gold Rush. And I'm delighted to say that as a fan of Gold Rush, I've been trying to get Todd on for a while, and I finally managed to do it. So I hope everybody's going to enjoy it. Todd is going to tell us all about his adventures, gold mining in Alaska, gold mining in Papua New Guinea, gold mining around the world. And he's going to tell us about maybe a possible new show coming from Gold Rush and about his father Jack and all those interesting stories so you have to stay tuned and listen to this and if you don't know Gold Rush, Gold Rush is the most highly rated show on the Discovery Channel and it's been a huge success for Discovery and Todd was one of the creators and co-founders of the Gold Rush platform so that's a really interesting chat we had and I hope you're going to come and listen to us. And I'd also like to tell you that starting from next week, um, we will be releasing the podcast a day early for subscribers to the platform. So if you subscribe to our website, you can listen to our exciting podcast shows on Thursday instead of Friday. And we hope you do that. And we hope you give us some love. And we hope you, you know, join the members who are already there and enjoying the privileges. And so that will be starting from next week's show. And if you subscribe right now, you can find the link below. You can hear the Todd Hoffman episode on Thursday instead of Friday. So please do that. Please help us out. And also there's a Patreon link. If anybody would like to support the show, we would love that and we would appreciate it greatly. So thank you very much, everybody. It's been wonderful having you here again. And we look forward to seeing you here and hearing from you the next time. Um, take care. Look after everyone you love and look after yourself most of all. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.